Good morning and welcome back to another episode of Backbench Drivers. I'm your host, John Lawson, and with me here, as always, is my co-host, Matthew. And joining me for the first time ever, we've got a very special guest. Uh, he's a former MP from Western Australia's largest electorate, Kalgoorlie. He is the father, or at least the godfather, of modern Australian nationalism. He's an author, and probably nowadays we can add to that long list a prophet because the predictions that he made uh, while he was uh, involved in politics many years ago have only come to fruition today. So I'd like to, for the first time ever, welcome Mr. Graham Campbell. How are you guys going? Hello. I'm well, thank you. So how's our week been? Oh, yeah. Come on, go. Fair enough. Um, so maybe we'll just uh, we'll jump right into it. Uh, could you tell us your story, how you got involved in politics and what took you all the way through to being kicked out of the Labour Party to starting your own party to today, basically? Well, it's a bit convoluted, the story. My, um, my father was very involved with the Labour Party in the United Kingdom. And when we came to Australia, he continued that relationship with the Labour Party. But... Um, in about uh, 1972, I think it was, he told me the Labour Party was finished. He said, "It's you know, the Labour Party just doesn't exist anymore. And I thought, oh, Dad, you're just older and better. So I joined the Labour Party and uh, moved into Kalgoorlie, got involved with the Labour Party uh, and got pre-selection for the seat of Kalgoorlie, a seat which no longer exists, by the way, um, which was a pity because it was the largest largest seat in Australia by far, which gave it a ex- bit of extra clout. Anyway, I think that um, the Labour Party did have a, a place, and I think that people like Senator Peter Walsh and Bill Hayden were both great people. I think Bill Hayton was the um, was the best Prime Minister Australia never had. Um, and his um, demise recently, I, um, I hope he's happy wherever he's gone. Now, I think a lot of damage was done to the Labour Party particularly by Keating, the Hawke government, the first term of the Hawke government, I think, was quite good government. Now, I certainly didn't support Hawke. I supported Bill Hayden. But um, after the first term, I think it began to go awry, and um, Keating was, in my view, completely treacherous. Um, President Truman once said, you show me a politician who's made money while in politics and I'll show you a crook. I think there's a lot of veracity to that that statement. Um, I, uh, the Labour Party left me. I didn't leave the Labour Party. The Labour Party was quite clearly being taken over by the Greens. I kept warning about this. And look, 
It's no beating about the bush. The Greens are actually the communists. And they're very active and they're very, very clever the way they go about it. The way they've infiltrated the Aboriginal industry, I think, is an example of that. Um, I'm much happier answering questions if you've got any questions. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I understand from reading your book that uh, Mr. Keating was probably your uh, key adversary because he was the one who expelled you from the party or at least um, made you leave. Uh, and he, he did a lot of damage to it himself. Did you ever meet any of the real labor stalwarts that came before, for example, Arthur Caldwell or um, any of the, the old guys like that that really built the Labor Party up to what it was at its own? Carl called it left the Parliament when I arrived in 1980. Um, there were a couple, I think, of the original group, but the, the Labor Party in those days was not without talent. Nowadays, I think it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm in a situation where I will never vote Labor again. I think they've just completely lost the plot. As I say, they've been hijacked by the Greens, i.e. Communists, and um, there's no future in that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's obvious to everyone, uh, all the audience, most of us would be conservatives or nationalists ourselves. And obviously the Labour Party is completely devoid of anything that made it great in the first place. It doesn't stand for the workers evidenced by their uh, present stance with immigration. And it doesn't stand for Australian culture as evidenced by the recent voice uh, proposal, which I'd love to get your uh, opinion on later on, if that's okay. Um, what what you think comes next and everything. Um, and, yeah, sure. Uh, but just, just from here, I'd like to hear uh, what happened next in your story. So after you um, encountered problems within Labor, uh, what happened next? I understand you ran as the independent. Well, Keating phoned me up. I was in actually a caucus meeting. Keating phoned me up and said, uh, uh, mate, I didn't tell you, your time's up. The federal executive have moved against you. And I said, um, oh, and he said, it wasn't my, uh, it wasn't my doing. I said, oh, come off the grass, Keating, about Paul, I called him. Come off the grass. Obviously, you could stop it if you wanted to do. Uh, oh, he said, uh, uh, I, I, I wouldn't want to stop it. I agree with what they've done. And I said, well, in that case, you're obviously culpable. Anyhow, the federal executive, I had won the pre-selection. They, they, uh, they made a deal with the Jewish community to get rid of me. And I'm told, I was told by a Jewish gentleman who told me he could sort of roll out for me, uh, $3 million, they would, um, I would lose pre-selection. So I duly went to pre-selection. And I must say, in most of the elections, I'd never, ever been opposed Nobody bothered to oppose me, but this this particular election, um, I think, it was the sixth election. Um, they ran very hard, um, but I actually got quite a bit of support out of sections of the left. And you've got to understand, the left in Australia is not the left of the old the old left. 
lift today is um, they um, support every artism that exists. The old left, I had a lot of time for, and the old left was actually fairly conservative. Anyhow, I won the selection, and I won the pre-selection by 15 votes. And I thought, well, that's the end of it. And what they did then, I guess to get their fifteen million, their $3 million, they went to the federal executive and got them to uh, basically say uh, I was expelled. Now, being expelled, I... Um, had no alternative but to run again as an independent, which I was very successful. I won that election very comfortably, despite the fact that they dug up an ex-minister from the state parliament, uh, a guy that I'd actually got pre-selected for years earlier, and... Um, they were sure that he would beat me, but it was just I knew I knew I could beat him, and Keating knew I could beat him too because he made that comment to Beasley. Um. Anyway, the result of that election, I won and Keating lost. Um. Congratulations. Uh, thanks. And I anyway, I thought I um was set for a fairly solid. Future, I thought I'm going to have a lot of influence here, but the next election, Pauline Hanson's preferences, Pauline Hanson, I might add, I had absolutely wet nurse when she got into Parliament. No one would speak to her, and I said to her, come and sit next to me, and the uh, parliamentary um, people were very relieved because they just couldn't um, place her in the parliament. I said, well, come sit next to me. That was fine. Her maiden speech was written in my office, and that maiden speech was a very good speech. Uh, and it, Unfortunately, everything that followed hasn't uh, lived up to that maiden speech. Well, she actually put into the speech, interjected into the speech, a comment that wasn't there. And she said, oh, I think there's too many Chinese people in Australia. Um, and that wasn't in the speech. Um, but anyhow, this election, she, they ran a candidate, and the candidate was, you know, what I'd call very low grade. But in the Pilbara, he had a very big following. And um, she got, uh, I think it was 7% of the vote, so we were three of us, three of the main contenders, Labour, Liberal, and myself on just about the same boat. And um, this preference of Pauline Nansen went entirely to the Liberal Party. And that got all the Liberals in. Um, anyway, that's, that's, that's history now. So what was, the, was there a falling out between you two, or what was the reason that she decided to preference the Liberals over yourself? Oh, no, she said to me, Oh, Graham, we, um, we're not going to receive preferences. Um, I said, Pauline, you, you can't distribute preferences anyway. What happens with what one nation? They used to put the, the out-of-vote cards 
on the ground with a stone on them and people would grab them and just vote down the card. They'd find Pauline Hansen one and then just vote down the card. So number two was Liberal. And uh, I was a borrower on the card, so I got just about a last vote. And I knew that's how the votes would go with One Nation. And anyway, that, that that's history. Um, unfortunately, that's the testament of a staying power of mediocrity. Yeah, um, yeah, I think a lot of us are disappointed with the way that One Nation has gone since its founding, you know, with it winning 25% of the vote in Queensland, the election after it was founded, um, and since yeah. declining from there to, that, you know, like you said, mediocrity. Yeah, but that election in Queensland was very disappointing because one nation hadn't really started when that election was obviously was due, and Australia First was running good candidates and we were in a very good position to pick up that vote. But um, One Nation got started. And I know, remember journalists from the Australians saying to me, you weren't in the race. She got $2 billion worth of free advertising. And um, that, yeah, wiped us out. We were, yeah, so that's... Uh... I, I guess we'll get uh, just inject this here, but you did found the Australia First Party following uh, your run as an independent and yeah, running uh, candidates in Queensland. So why do you think uh, Pauline got so much attention, but you didn't, even though you both won upset races? Uh, her against the Liberals, you against Labor in your own uh, in your own electorate. I, I think it was just the media concentration. You know, media attacks on her were good for her vote. The people who were going to vote for her, the more the media attacked her, the stronger their support group. Um, and as I say, there was, I was told there was about $2 billion worth of free advertising in a sense. And uh, she did very well. Our party did very well. Australia First was constituted quite differently. We we had a what we call core policies. I'm um, We'd expect our members to support those core policies, but anything else, we'd expect them to have a free vote and vote in the interest of their electorate. So we gave our members much more freedom than other political parties do. Um, we expected support on our policy for immigration, which was to reduce immigration and um, take into into Australia people that were easily assimilated. See, I've long held there is only one reason for for immigration, and that is net benefit to Australia. It's not a net benefit to Australia. Just don't do it. And uh, it's quite clear that our immigration policy in recent years has not been a net benefit. Yeah, no, absolutely correct. And we're seeing uh, demographic transformations on down this uh, uncontrolled immigration policy. Um, but I just wanted to get your opinion. So uh, with Australia First versus One Nation, do you think she got so much, uh, Pauline got so much more media coverage than you because uh, she was less restrained in her language and because of all the gaffes that she had uh, along the campaign trail? Yeah, 
Yeah, whereas you guys were more refined and more professional. Yes. One of the things that I, I recall, Pauline Nancy asked me if I would do an interview with her. So we turned up this interview, and um, there was a division called in the middle of the interview, so we had to go for the division. Along the way back, I arrived at the office of the, where the interview was taking place a little before her, and I heard them say, well, we've got to separate her from Campbell. We've got to get Campbell out of this somehow. And uh, I said, well, that's going to be difficult because I'm here. Um, it was a fairly long interview, but they just took a few excerpts from Pauline and um, that constituted their um, their entire interview. Um, I public meetings, and I had a couple with Pauline. People would ask her a question, and she clearly didn't know. And I'd say, I'd sit and say, well, Pauline, I'll discuss this and give the response. We, in fact, hadn't discussed it at all, but um, I gave the response I thought was most appropriate, the way that, that I felt. Anyhow, the people that she employed, I think, saw money and power in it, and they weren't of very high caliber. I've forgotten their, na- forgotten their names now. One ended up in the New South Wales upper house. Um... She was. She was a. Um, she was. She was a blimp on the um, horizon of Australian politics. I don't think she matters much anymore. Um, I found a lot of her very good members just fell out with her and uh, left the left one nation. We had a very good One Nation member, House member in Kalgoorlie, a um, guy called Robin Scott. First-rate fellow, worked his butt off for the electorate. Of course, in the election, um, without the preferences, he didn't have a hope. So he lost the seat. And I hope he, um, he'll never run for One Nation again. He was... Completely fed up with him, but um, I hope he finds a place in politics because he was very good. I suppose David Oldsfield is the prime example of this because uh, of his falling out with Pauline, him being so high profile and uh, contributing to the foundation of the party. But, yeah. uh, now we've got your story, we'll move on to your opinions and, and uh, the way that you saw politics, the program that you laid out and made you different from the rest of the, the uh, political class. Um, Matthew, did you want to go ahead with that? Graham, we've seen a lot over the last 20, 30 years, especially from both the Liberal and Labor Party, changing stance on immigration particularly. What do you think has caused this change and how do you think as young nationalists how we can revert this? Um, look, Malcolm Fraser alone was largely responsible for this. I was actually in Lebanon at the time. Um, Marvel Fraser decided that he was going to allow into Australia 
uh, Lebanese of um, Islamic persuasion. The mood in Israel was, oh, isn't this great? Hey, sorry, the mood in Lebanon was, was great. They said, I know. Why doesn't he take them all? Um, now, they have turned out to be an absolute blight on the Australian political horizon. They're, um, they, they form their own ghettos. Um, they have no, in my view, no loyalty to Australia at all. And therefore, are a very dubious benefit. Now, obviously exceptions, and I'm prepared to um, accept that, but overwhelmingly, they are bad news. And Malcolm Fraser had absolutely no need to do that. Um, he was under no pressure to do it, just something uh, he did off his own bat, and um, we've suffered the consequence ever since. Now, I've been saying, I've been opposing the policy of multiculturalism. Oh, yeah, multiculturalism works in Australia. I say, no, it doesn't. It did at one stage. Multiculturalism was what united the warring tribes of um, Ireland, England and Wales and Scotland into a cohesive force. Um, and um, to that extent, was successful. Multiculturalism, as introduced by Fraser with the support of Gough Whitlam, has been a disaster uh, and is a growing disaster. You know, what we're getting is not multicultural now, we're getting multinationalism, multinational, and we're, we're, we are creating nations that we're, we're becoming a, a nation of tribes which is not good for the survival of Australia in an era in the world where unity is absolutely paramount. And you've been saying it for decades as well. You said it before Pauline was even on the scene and we all spoke very Exactly, and you spoke very extensively in your book. Um, you even predicted a lot of the uh, unforeseen consequences of it and even things such as you predicted there would be strange foreign diseases that would come as a result of this. And, of course, we saw the COVID crisis uh, over the last couple of years. You also talked about the economic impacts and the demographic impacts, the cultural impacts, and even the foreign policy, which, of course, we've seen with the recent uh, israel Gaza war, how that has uh, sent a complete rupture through our politics and through our society as well. Uh, did you want to speak about how you were able to foresee these impacts, or is this just plain to see? Well, I think they were just were so obvious. Now, I had a Chinese fellow who was a big supporter of mine, and every election he'd give me a donation. And he said to me once, I am Chinese. You can't be more Chinese than I am. But he said, my parents followed the British into Sarawak and Borneo, and... Um, we had no dealing, dealings with the communists in China. And he said, I can tell you this, that six out of ten, maybe more, 
are supporters of the uh, communist government. And he said, they may never do anything, but if asked, they will. He saw this when Australia made a very weak commitment about freedom of the China Sea, which, you know, the international courts have all maintained that this is a um, an area that's uh, free of national entities. Um, there was a demonstration in Melbourne and a demonstration in Sydney. A demonstration in Melbourne got 30,000 Chinese and one in Sydney got slightly more. Now, all that was organised by the Chinese embassy. They simply said to these people, go out and demonstrate about this. You go walk with the crowd. That was just one recent example. And we are in a situation where our um, foreign policy is going to be dictated to by uh, foreign powers. Well, the presence of high, highly powerful Israelis within government and media and uh, in lobbying has been absolutely detrimental to Australia pursuing its own interests um, in terms of where we go to war, in terms of where we're sending uh, money and aid to. Uh, this is also something that you pointed out, and not only yeah, that, yeah. also been detrimental with the cultural uh, sphere where they posed, although we, we've just spent a little while criticising One Nation, you, in your book you talked about how um, the also the Jewish Israel Australian Review, they um, they leaked the One Nation members list, and they've done various other things which, which aren't uh, beneficial to Australians. But yes, you're about right. the Chinese influence and, and various other aspects as well. What well, you get out down with the Jewish influence, there are two different groups. The Sydney Jews are mainly English or German Jews. That's their. There's no called Anglo Jews, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. The Melbourne is um, all, um, I suppose, Ashkenazi, uh, Eastern European Jews. Um, now, the Jewish News was a newsletter of the Sydney Jews, and I never had any problems with it. The um, the newsletter that, that they put out in Melbourne was vitriolic and attacked me continually. Now, I am not Jew. I am not anti-Jewish. I am anti-Zionist. And you know, well, you see this now in Israel and um, the conflict in Gaza, there can be no solution there other than a national state for the Palestinians. That is the only solution. Now, I think a lot of Jews would support that, but the um, Zionists who are in power in Israel won't support it. And... Um, I'm hoping the next election we see a big react. Our next election in Israel we see a big reaction, and we get rid of Netanyahu uh, and some of the other extremists. Because without a state for the Palestinians, certainly deserve one, there can be um, no stability in the Middle East. Now. 
what Zionists should remember is the Kingdom of Jerusalem lasted for a hundred years, just on a hundred years, ninety-eight years, only it was. The uh, Israel hasn't existed for that long, um, and uh, every conflict they've had has got more and more dangerous. I think um, we have a chance to resolve this now, but that resolution must contain a state, a homeland for the um, the uh, Palestinian people. Do you think that is... Do you think that's very likely, considering the the level of controls that certain uh, Jewish people have over American politics? You look at Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and whatnot. Well, you want to go back in history? Yeah, I'd like it to. was Amer- it was America that that actually destroyed the Balfour Doctrine. The Balfour Doctrine was. A um, convoluted paper where Britain promised the same thing to both sides. But British politics, they would have worked that out. Um, but the Americans preempted that. Now, the, the, the quick victory of the um, Israelis was largely because. They were supplied with the latest weapons by Russia, and Stalin also provided officers, and that Stalin would have had no trouble finding experienced Jewish officers in his army at that stage. Now, the Americans knew this, but the Americans made no attempt to oppose it. And um, that was the root of the of the problem. You've got to understand in America, and I've been to America a couple of times, and um, amongst the general public, there's a lot of disquiet about Israel. And I think a lot of the public generally would like the government to um, be more restrained. Now, I think we're at a stage where that could happen. Uh, you've got an election coming up and I think if Biden goes in very hard on supporting the Jews it could have a reaction against him and free about at home as well we've seen with uh, the Labour Party as well they haven't been quite as uh, you know gung-ho with supporting Israel as liberals have been um do you see this as one hangover of the old Labor Party supporting Australia first interests, or what do you re- think the reason is? I look, I really don't know. I'm, I'm watch that with interest. Um, uh, I think that's the um, see the old Labor Party. The old Labour Party probably would have been much more conservative in its view. Well, it certainly would have been more conservative in its views. But the new Labour Party, I think um, it's ideologically gone. 
to um, the um, lossful words for this describe the new um, left. But I think it's the left agenda and the supporting or giving some support to the uh, Palestinians. Fair enough. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, maybe we'll move uh, along to the next topic because we've been on this one for a little while. Um, I also wanted to get your opinion of what uh, what nationalists, ourselves included, can do to uh, turn our country around because, of course, everything that you foresaw in your time, which you spoke about, has only really gotten worse since then. And we've only got uh, really less electoral options. Um, after all, I, I don't know what your opinion on the Australia First Party as it stands today is, um, but I, I think a lot of us can see a lot of problems with it. I, what do you see as the way forward? Well, a lot of us uh, over here have been encouraging people to join uh, the Liberal Party and try and turn it around from within. I'd like to also get your opinion on that. Look, I've cut all ties with... Um... Australia first, I still think they went in a completely wrong direction um, and they're irrelevant in today's political scene. Okay, we're in agreement then on that. Yeah. Now, the, um, I think joining the Liberal Party and trying to change there is probably the best option we have because I think the Liberal Party is open to change. Um, but then I'm only looking at the West Australian Liberal Party. I don't really understand or know anything about the Liberal Party in the other states. Um, but I know that there is very good scope for change in the West Australian Liberal Party. Um Oh, in terms of nationalism, what, what Australia First was proposing was an outward-looking uh, outward nationalism. Um, we're not looking to be uh, internal nationalism like you're getting nowadays, but, um, you know, I think one of the things that is paramount, and one of the things that multiculturalists are seeking to destroy is connection with Britain. And um, people should remember that when Howard made the decision that he was going to invade Timor, it was a pretty bold decision, given the relative size of the... Um, Indonesian and Australian Army. Now, immediately, Britain offered their support, um, followed by uh, the other Commonwealth nations. America didn't, and it never did openly support our invasion of Timor because it wanted to maintain its relation with Indonesia. British lent on the Americans to to uh, make available a lot of their satellite surveillance um, intelligence, which we wouldn't have got if it hadn't been for pressure from Britain. 
And I think uh, people should remember that. The um, Americans will support us as long as it's in their interests. And if it's not there, if they don't perceive in their immediate interests, they won't support us, no matter what. People talk about the, the treaties we've got and all that. So uh, I think that um, we ought to be, be moving closer and reinvigorating our association with Britain. Because um, Britain is still a considerable military power able to... Um, express that, that power um, quite quickly. And, you know, I think it's something else that ought to be taken into consideration. I, I remember when I was in Parliament, I was, I had a delegation from South Korea come to see me. And they said, Mr. Campbell, we want to employ you as a lobbyist to um try and get the British to see South Korea as their partner um, in this part of the world. And I said, oh, this is a surprise of me, and I'd have thought you were totally in bed with the Americans. And they said to me, Mr. Campbell, we think British equipment is better and cheaper and um, we believe we'd get a very fair go from Britain. I said to them, look, I'm a member of parliament, I'm not in position to be a lobbyist for you, but I'll certainly take to talk to the High Commissioner, the British High Commissioner, and express the views that you've given me. Thank you very much, Mr Campbell, and we're making a present of come on, a couple of things, I don't know what they were now, um, corporal presence from South Korea. Um, well, I did speak to Bruce, they said, yes, we are well aware, but we think that uh, South Korea is too close to um, China, and um, we would be reluctant to put our latest technology in that field. And they said to me, the obvious partner for us is Australia, but you seem to be entirely in bed with the Americans. I said, yes, that's a problem, and uh, I think we ought to be looking at it. We never have, of course. Yeah, well, it seems that there is a an extreme short-sightedness in terms of our foreign policy. But um, I think uh, the statements that you made uh, years ago in your book about uh, the impact of our changing demographics upon our foreign policy as well, you talked about how um, uh, we're building a fifth column within the country that aren't loyal to the flag or to the country or um, to any sort of form of the old Australia. Uh, so what would we need to do to uh, reverse this foreign policy problem. Well, it's not a matter of building a fifth column, we're building lots of different fifth columns. 
So we're in the situation, basically, no matter what we do, we'll have a fifth column to defend, to contend with. Now, Australia is very easily defended. And uh, with the right um, equipment and the right attitude, we can make Australia basically an impregnable fortress. Um, But we can't do that if you have a substantial fifth column within the country. So it's dangerous to our national security. Now, when you look at immigration, a lot of Indians actually have an affinity for Britain, and so they bloody well should. Other countries, um, not so. Now, a lot of the small Southeast Asian nations and I spoke very extensively, they are very, very frightened of the Chinese. And they've seen it happen in their own countries, and um, they don't want it to happen here. Um, and I don't see any threat from Philippines um, and numerous other small countries. But um, we have to be very mindful of that. And one of the reasons, the only way you can stop that is to have a policy, an unapologetic unapologetic policy of net value to Australia. Immigration must be a net value to Australia. That means scrapping the family reunion. Oh, you can't do that. That's terrible to stop. People and the families reuniting. We're not stopping the reuniting. If they want to reunite, they can go back where they, they came from. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. As this people, more and more people see the problem, I think we will see the major political parties will have to move to a more. Um, sensible, sane immigration policy. I mean, this this nonsense, we are part of Asia. We're not part of Asia at all. We are basically a Western culture on the edge of Asia. And that has many advantages. Um, A lot of the Asians I've talked to, they like that. They like that, but... um, we are not um, part of Asia. After all, they left Asia. Um. Anyway, that's all I can say on that, I guess. Yeah, Graham, we saw last year with the voice referendum a large groundswell of grassroots support against this kind of Aboriginal lobbying. Uh, do you see this as our kind of Trump moment where this nationalism can be Im- implemented more so into the main bo- body politic? The, the ASRA referendum was very, very diabolical. Had we voted yes, 
And look, it was possible Australia would have said, oh, yeah, well, what's so, you know, you know, I say yes. Uh, it would have actually entrenched the Aboriginal industry, and I've been writing against the Aboriginal industry as long as I can remember. The Aboriginal industry does not represent Aboriginals. Now, I'm living proof of that because the Aboriginal industry opposed me every election. My Aboriginal vote went up in every election because the Aboriginal people themselves, they know that the, the Aboriginal industry does not serve their interests. You've got people living in remote communities where the cost of living is astronomically high, where services go on services are very, very limited, where housing uh, is expensive, um, and this needn't be so. The money we've spent, if that had been applied sensibly, we could have improved living conditions enormously for Aboriginal people. Now, I oppose the no election. I did the, the yes vote very, very strongly. I campaigned every day for the no vote, and um, I was gratified by the by the outcome. And rather amused the fact that the only place that voted yes was Canberra, and that, of course, is the homeland of the Aboriginal industry. And they. And you contrast that with... You can sort of look at that map, can't you, and see yeah. the, whole, the whole problem that we face just by looking at that, uh, where, how the no vote went. Yeah, yeah. well, that's right, you can. But one thing people should realise, that more, more Aboriginals in the Northern Territory in the Northern Territory voted no than voted yes. Mm-hmm. And to add to that, a lot of the places where you got a u- unanimous yes vote that was a dragoon vote. It was an organised vote. It wasn't the will of the people at all. And I've seen that over many, many years, how that works in Aboriginal communities. I, uh, what we have to do, though, and I've been speaking to the um, organisers of the yes vote, oh, sorry, the no vote, we've got to capitalise on it. Because we don't, we just fritter away the advantage we have now. We should be taking a very proactive position and one of the first things to do, and I don't see how anyone could object to this, certainly supported by a lot of Aboriginal people, we would say all Commonwealth money must be subject to audit by the, um, the government audit office. Um, they have their own audits. Um, I've forgotten my name and the acronym for it now, but it's as corrupt and incompetent as can possibly be, and that should be scrapped entirely. And the money given to the Social uh, Securities Commission to offset the additional cost of the workload, but all audits should be done through the Companies of Securities Commission, not through their own audit office which clearly doesn't work that sounds only possible to be honest well well, it's totally reasonable and what would happen is you'd find quite a few people bailing out to that general job we get out before they get on to us now 
I've been being told about Aboriginal people in Northern Territory, um, like prison. Objective is to get rid of the Northern, of the, uh, Northern Land Council. Uh, all, both land councils in um, Northern Territory are totally corrupt. Um, and um, Aboriginal people tell me, oh, they've all got their money in the Bahamas. Oh, it's staying in the Bahamas. They reckon that they've got all this money stuck in the Bahamas and their individual names, and that's where the money's gone. Well, I don't know whether it's gone there, but it's certainly gone there somewhere because it hasn't been spent on the ground. Um, yeah, you see um, various um, Four Corners documentaries and whatnot around the abuses in Aboriginal communities, especially around finances, and it's widespread. It goes from rural communities in Northern Territory to Northern New South Wales throughout Queensland and into WA. So how do you think we as nationalists can broach this issue of uh, neglect and abuse in Aboriginal communities? Well, I think the first step is to, as I say, to get all the orders to be done by the Companies and Security Commission. And the next thing is, we should be teaching Aboriginal people how to build their own houses. Houses are going to be a lot cheaper. And houses, we shouldn't be renting houses to these people. We should be putting them on, um, they'd be purchasing the houses. Um, their rents, I think, are, well, the cost of the houses is very high to build. It costs about 450000 to put a very average house out in the community. It's just nonsense. You could build a perfectly acceptable house for less than half of that. And um, I, know, I know one place where they have a concrete brick machine which has never been used. Well, it, may, it has been used, but they're not being used now. Now, concrete blocks are a very suitable material for building houses in those remote conditions. We teach the Aboriginals how to build themselves, and um, then we um, we sell the houses and put them on mortgages, not on rent. Now, you get a property ownership, you've, you've got something. They own a property, they have something. When you think about it, the average white family in their life, they work all their lives, when they get to retirement age, they have their house paid for, they own a motor car, maybe they got a boat, but that's about all they've got. The Aboriginals miss out, they don't get that house. And I am sure, well I know from experience I've seen where people have been, have got ownership of their houses, the maintenance cost goes down dramatically. House is just a machine, and the more people you've got opening and banging doors on, quickly they fall to pieces, um, the more likely you are to have violence, and, you know, people 
especially fairly fragile houses. But if you um, got them to build their own houses, they they have pride in it. But owning their own house, you'll cut down the maintenance costs enormously. Yeah, no, that seems like a pretty uh, efficient idea, beneficial to the whole country. Um, and it's a lot of people that need current solutions. Well, I've been saying that for 40 years, but Melbourne was awesome. Yeah, well, now you're in as Prime Minister and you can uh, solve it all. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I guess I should have been Pope. My infallibility makes me can let to be Pope. No, I, I definitely think you're up there. You're up with us. Yeah. I can move a category that ain't mad as much. Oh, you Nah, we love our Catholics. We love our Catholics. Catholic, all that for you. And get you baptized. Um, anyway, I think we're we're approaching the end of our time here. But uh, maybe just to wrap up, you could tell us what you've been doing uh, since your involvement in politics, Graham. What have you been doing for the last couple of years? Apart from going around and never diminishing circles, I've been very heavily involved in combating the Aboriginal industry. Um, just an ongoing battle. Um, I was very, um, very involved in the, um, the No campaign. Um, I, um, I'm afraid I'm running out of steam. Um, I used to accept that if you wrote 10 letters to the paper, you get one published. And that was a start, but I got to the stage where I can't be bothered. Um, we have uh, not much of a local paper here, the Calgary Minor. Um, it's published uh, six days a week. Um, in my view, is if you can get letters in there, it's worth it. Well, I don't, I don't have the, you know, the stamina to write 10 letters anymore. Well, uh, maybe I've got an offer for you. Uh, as, lo- as well as publishing the podcast, we also have a written section on our website. So if you ever want to write anything up, I'd be happy to publish it. And um, we can at least give you an audience over here at the National Observer. Oh, well, okay. Well, I'll certainly think about that. Yep. Sorry, I interrupted you on that one. If you wanted to continue, oh no, yeah. One of the other problems I have is um, being slightly dyslexic. I've never been never been able to master the spelling of the English language. That didn't matter where I had good office staff, but I don't have that anymore. Anyway, I can edit it up for you. It's no problem for me. That's a bit of trivia. <laughs> That's all right. There you go. So if anyone's dyslexic in the audience, there's some encouragement. You can accomplish big things. Mm. Um, anyway, I think uh, that pretty much brings us to the end. Thank you for joining us, Graham. It's been a great honor to have you. You're a personal hero of mine, um, if I can admit that. 
And uh, I'd love to have you on again in the future to get some more of your knowledge and wisdom out to our audience. Well, I'm happy to help. Thanks, Graham. Appreciate yeah, the time. Thank you. thank you for joining us. Right. Once again, see you guys later. Have a great night.